180 meters to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot! What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh my goodness, what a finish for Bradley Hughes. Easy number five, joins the lead. An amazing victory for the second time. Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. A very big welcome to Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast Episode 1. This is my very first podcast, A Leap Into the Unknown. My first guest is in need of no introduction. A fabulous golf career with a major championship on his resume and a frequent visitor to our living rooms at many PGA Tour events via his role as a commentator for the CBS golf team. Frequently accoladed as one of the nicest, most genuine people of all time in the golfing fraternity, I welcome my friend, my good friend, Ian Baker-Finch. Ian Baker-Finch, welcome to this podcast on Bradley Hughes Golf. It's great to have you here. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot. Thanks very much, Hugo. Good to be with you, as always. So you grew up in Nambour, Queensland. I've never really been there. What was life like, and, and why why did you get into golf at that, you know, and what age? Uh, mate, if we could talk about this, just one topic for at least an hour, it's... Uh an unusual thing in the 60s for a kid in the farming area on the Sunshine Coast, Glasshouse Mountains area, to even know what golf was, to be honest. But uh, I grew up on a farm, youngest of six kids, uh, born in 1960, October. And my dad was a, a farmer, and he basically got to know about golf because of Arnold Palmer. And as you know, he legitimised golf for the masses, and a few of the farmers in the area started to play golf at a little nine-hole course about 10 miles away from our farm. And uh, later in the 60s, they decided to build their own course called Viewer Golf Club and um, just built from voluntary labour. All the farmers in the area built it up. Dad got a, a loan from the forestry department to get a hundred acres of land in a little swampy area in the pine forest. And uh, they built a course. I started to play when I was about 10 or 11. Got my first set of clubs for my 12th birthday. And, uh, you know, left school at the age of 15 to be a golf pro. So um, it's pretty interesting. And no one in my area really, as I said, knew about golf, let alone played golf. So uh, it was uh, an unusual time but and exciting times, you know, as a young fella starting out that way. So that's that's amazing. Arnold Palmer had that far reach, didn't he? To, to all the way out there. Yeah, incredible. And then you know, um, then the big three started. You probably remember as a kid, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, and Jack Nicklaus used to travel around the world on these uh, promotional tours. For Slazenger, is that right? Put on television. Yeah, that's. I, I mean, I remember seeing that they they were represented. Or well, I know Palmer and Nicholas. Uh, sorry, Player and Nicholas represented Slazenger and came out to Australia for several occasions. Obviously, thirteen Australian Opens between them. So, did you get to see all that like live when you were young? <clears throat> no, I watched. I just watched it on TV, and uh, you know, that was uh, in the early '60s. Uh, you know, the Cool. Jack Nicholas got to coach Ian Baker Finch. Oh, I'm sort of in that same boat. You know, I, I learned off Greg Norman and his book, and obviously he read Golf My Way, so we're, we're related in a little bit of a way there. Yeah, you, you uh, were obviously a better reader than me because your swing's far better than mine. <laughs> oh, no. Swing's not always the thing. 
So you said you left at 15 to go do an apprenticeship. Uh, did, was there any hint of what was to come, any form at, at that time, or you just loved golf and, and wanted to maybe see what happened? Correct. That's, that's exactly how it was. It wasn't like now where you go to college and you have so much information available to you and, and the internet and the coaching and training and whatever that the kids that have been turned out now are just unbelievable athletes and, and golfers at an early age. For me, it was a love of the game. Uh, I wanted to play the best I possibly could, but I always thought that I'd just be a club pro. And if I could go play in tournaments alongside uh, Jack Nicklaus and Gary Player and Arnold Palmer, if, if that uh, opportunity arose, that's what I would do. But mainly the apprenticeship in Australia is to be a, a club pro or a teaching pro like yourself. And uh, if you happen to be a hard enough worker and a good enough player, you can make it on tour. Absolutely. So, you know, when you started out, we've, a lot of people won't know this, all the Australians well, the Pro-Am circuit in Queensland was called the Tropo Tour. Now, we could think that was aptly named because Queensland's a very tropical place, but I believe it's more the prize money, the towns, the travel, could send a person Tropo, which is in Australian lingo uh, a little bit crazy. I'm sure you've got some big memories of that and, you know, it's in folklore, that tour. Well, what's the funniest thing you ever saw being a part of that? Well, I finished my apprenticeship as an 18-year-old in, in uh, July of 79. So uh, we went and started to play some of these tournaments um, that were pro-am events. You just travelled around the state. The state of Queensland is two and a half times the size of Texas. Just to give you an understanding for the listeners, how big Queensland is, it's one-sixth of the country, and Australia is the same size as the USA without Alaska. So um, there was a lot of driving, a lot of travelling, and we you know, played for a couple of thousand dollars a day. The winner got two or three or four hundred dollars, and it was just great camaraderie. So at the start of uh, the tour in 1980, there was ten of us rented a bus and a U-Haul trailer. We put our clubs on top of the bus and our suitcases in the trailer and uh, a big garbage can full of ice and cans of beer. And off we went. And we travelled the tour for uh, three months in this bus. And needless to say, we all have uh, <laughs> some incredible fun times and memories of travelling the Tropo tour in this bus. And on that bus just happened to be two major champions, Wayne Grady and myself and a host of other players that played well around the world and, and overseas. And so um, it was a, uh, an unusual start to uh, some really successful careers. <laughs> I bet that, uh, well, in a way it prepared you for what was to come, but uh, obviously not at the same time. It, it would have been hard work, but obviously fun, fun in that regard. And, and just speaking about Queensland, if you think about it, we've got yourself, Greg Norman, Jason Day, Adam Scott, and Wayne Grady, as you mentioned, all major champions and all from Queensland. So why did Queensland, what did that have that was so special that was able to produce uh, the major champs like yourselves? You know, it's a very hard thing to put your finger on one specific, but I would say the courses were pretty average in Queensland. There was nothing very good. It was all warm climate grasses. Um, just basically... Uh, very basic beauty type of courses. So you learn to play in really difficult conditions. Uh, you learn how to play from various lies, etc., various grasses. Uh, we learned how to putt aggressively because the greens were so crappy. And, um, you know, they weren't bent greens like we had down south in Melbourne where the greens are 10 out of 10 perfect every day. When we went to Melbourne, we had to learn golf all over because it was so different. Yeah. But the thing was, Greg, Greg set the He's six years older than me, uh, a couple of years older than Wayne Grady. And, and we all looked at Greg as the guy that we had to uh, emulate and, and copy. And Greg was a hard worker and really fit and strong. And we just wanted to be like him. So he led the way. Wayne followed. I won one the next year. You know, and I think Adam Scott once said to me, I was 11 just starting to play golf when you won the Open, Benji. And me and all my mates started to play golf and, and practice because of you. And I'm sure that's the story with all of the young guys coming through. They had Greg Norman as the guiding light. And then various others of us, like Pete Senior and, and other players that came out of Australia that they copied. 
copied and emulated and tried to, to beat. And we were all just regular guys. You know, none of us had anything uh, that special um, that stood out. But we were just hard workers and, and thought, I thought if Wayne Grady could do it, I could do it. And he felt the same. And Pete Senior felt the same. And I'm sure that's how it went with all the younger guys as they came through. As you know, when a buddy does well, you think, well, gee, I beat him last week. I can do that too. And it just sort of elevates your standard. And these days in the US, you see that with the college teams, how many really, really good quality PGA Tour capable players come out of certain college programs because they've been practicing together for two, three, four years. And uh, they get out on tour and um, just sort of do, do what uh, their buddies have been doing and have, have a great belief system. Yeah, I agree. You know, you, you, you want to, you want to achieve something like you said that, and if your mate does it, you, you can't see why, why you can't. Who, who are your guys uh, at your age? What are you now, 51? Um, yeah, 51. I, I grew up uh, in Melbourne. I grew up with Craig Parry before he moved over to Western Australia. Um, I played against Brett Ogle, Peter O'Malley. So we, we also had a, a pretty good batch of, of good players coming through there. Glenn Joyner, David E. Cobb. So, you know, and and again, like you said, even though we were competitors, we were from different states, we all hung out together and, and were mates. I think that's a very, very Australian thing. You know, you, you want your mates to do well, but then you want to beat them the next week at the same time. Yes. And that's, <clears throat> that carries on now on the PGA Tour, all the Aussies. Um, assimilated well into the US you know we all live here and our kids have American accents and go to school here so we've lived here all our lives pretty much but we're Aussies and we we kind of have the same sense of humor and, and way about ourselves and uh, they all still have the, the Texas guys kind of hang out together you know Chapman, Sendon, Pampling those boys and then you got the Phoenix boys and the Florida boys they they all still uh, travel together and hang out together so that um uh, upbringing and, and heritage uh, is still a strong connection. Yeah, I know. Like I saw you, it was a while ago now when I was down uh, with Robert Allenby and we, we hung out. And it's almost like you don't see an Aussie for, let's say, a year and you start talking. It's like you just saw each other again last week. You know, it's really easy to blend back in. Correct. So your first big win was the New Zealand Open, 1983. Everyone remembers their first win. So what's the recollection about that and fill us in how that really opened up the door for you to get full notice of the golfing world the following year at St Andrews Okay, so I had, had been working with uh, Peter Thompson uh, the great five time open champion and, and a mentor of mine for a period from sort of 81 through 84 and he uh, had kind of turned my swing and my game around a little bit over the 82-83 period, I played well up in Queensland in 83 and I finished runner-up at the Australian Open at Kingston Heath um, to Peter Fowler and that gave me the confidence to think that hey, you know, I'm on, I'm, I'm now on the verge, I know what I'm doing with my game and I went over to New Zealand the next week and won. Um, I parted extremely well, I played with Wayne Grady all four days and Wayne still reminds me of that I missed, I used to just reach around and tap the four footers back in. Uh, I was so confident with my putting, and uh, I never marked the ball after a putt missed. I'd always just go around, I'll finish, and, and knock it in. And he said it was pretty amazing how I played that week and won easily. And those two weeks, Hugo, I won 16,000 for second at the Open and 18,000 for winning the New Zealand. So that 34 grand was like the most money I'd ever seen in my life. And uh, it, I then started planning on going to Europe. And because I finished top five on the money list in Australia, I was exempt into the Open. I didn't have to qualify. And that gave me uh, the opportunity to get other invitations to play in Europe. And I had four events before. And I finished uh, 19th, 4th, 4th um, in my first three events in Europe in 84 when I first started to travel. So my confidence was pretty high. I missed the cut at the Lawrence Batley, fortunately, because it was a terrible golf course. So I was glad to get to St Andrews early. And the Open being St Andrews, Peter Thompson was there, Kel Nagel, all of the great old champions used to come play. And I played four practice rounds with Peter Thompson, 
Kel Nagel, who won the Centenary Open at St Andrews, uh, and Graham Marsh, who was another great Australian player, superstar. So that was really what was the catalyst, I guess, um, to getting to see St Andrews, being shown around by you know two Open winners there. Um, and the Saturday, Sunday before Arnold Palmer flew in, uh, Tip Anderson, who was Arnold Palmer's great caddy, was friends with Tomo, and he caddied for me. So the first two days there, I'm playing with Peter Thompson and Callum Hagel and Graham Marsh, and I've got Tip Anderson caddying for me. <laughs> so you got you got led around there by the hand pretty nicely. Yeah, it was just incredible. And so anyway, I, I led for three days, uh, played in the last group with Tom Watson, um, just an incredible uh, looking back on it now gee was what's that 34 years ago start to my career and even though I messed up on the Sunday and didn't win um, it gave me the belief that I could play internationally that was really the first time that I thought I'm going to win this thing I'm going to do everything I possibly can in my power to become a better player so next time I don't mess up and I, and I win it Perfect. That's, um, you know, 1984. I was actually going to ask you about that. You know, you played the final group with Watson. And I know, you know, you probably don't think about this at the time. You probably think about it now. But even though it was early on, did you feel that you belonged, you know, in that final group that day? Or, or you, you know, obviously you'll hope to win. But was it more, you know, experience if it didn't happen? Or, you know, if it did happen, what, what do you think may have uh, come from that? So in 1984, you know, even after that disappointment, and it's not really a disappointment, it was, it was a great stepping stone for you. you. You go back home and you win the New South, New South Wales Open by about 14 or 15 shots at the lakes. So, yeah. you know, I've had a, a, a day or a week like that once also, but what, you know, why does those week, why do those weeks happen? What, what enables you to separate so much from the field? Because it's pretty rare. course was set up tough and it was windy and the greens were about 14 on the step meter and 
Uh, my short game was just so good. I drove it in the fairway every time I played. Never had to clean my shoes. I used to drive it so straight <laughs> and uh, and just hold the putts when I needed to. And I remember birdieing the last in three iron into about ten, <clears throat> about ten foot on that par three at the lakes. Remember? Yeah. And uh, made birdie to win. I shot fifteen under and won by thirteen strokes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was just everything clicks. You know, you, you make the putts you need to. You, you make those six footers for par when you hit a bad chip. It's it just everything. Everything flows and. It's nice not to sweat on the last hole either, because generally every golf tournament's close, and there's always one shot somewhere that separates it. So I'm sure it's a weird, it's a weird feeling. I'm sorry, mate. Uh, I won the Masters by five one year, but I won the Players Championship there up at Rabina Woods by twelve. So that was a bit similar to you. It's a little eerie feeling, just hoping that you sign your card right, because nothing else can really go wrong. That's right. <laughs> So you, you took uh, Nick Price's advice, got your card on the US Tour by coming third at the World Series and Firestone. I think that's something that not many people did over that time, you know, make enough money out of a, a couple of events to to get their card. So as far as now being able to play in America, self-satisfaction, no fear or relief that, you know, Europe's behind you and I'm heading to a great unknown, or, or what did you feel? Uh, at first, I played a few tournaments in 85 because of my performance at the, at the Open Championship. I was invited to the Masters, and I played, uh, you know, seven or eight tournaments on the US Tour in 1985 as a young fella, and uh, made a couple of cuts, didn't play particularly well, realised I needed to go and practice if I was going to come and play here full-time. So 85, 6, 7, and 8, I played in Europe and Japan. And then in 89... Jenny and I started a family and Haley was born on the 7th of February and we decided then if we were going to play um, and, and travel as a family, the US was where we went. So we went over uh, to Orlando, bought a place there in March of 89 and we've been here since. So uh, Haley and Laura, our second daughter that was born after the Open uh, win in 91, live in America, have... have uh, Haley's married here. Laura lives in New York and uh, works up there in the city. So we've really been here 30 years now. And that was my first year on tour, really, was 1989. Uh, we, we felt good. You know, I, I didn't really stress over it too much. I thought I'd do okay. And I won the Colonial that year, uh, 1989. It was my sixth event, I believe, in 1989, and I won it. So I was exempt then, and the pressure was off. Yeah, that's a great tournament too, Hogan's Alley. Can't can't get a better feeling seeing your name on the wall there. Yeah, great great course, uh, Colonial, great tournament, and you know the, the Hogan Heritage. Of course, I got to sit beside him for a couple of, of the dinners as past champion. Um, was was a good experience there in the late eighties. I bet. So now we're heading into you know British Open territory. Start nineteen ninety one. Obviously, you won the Open at Royal Birkdale, but the week before was a crazy string of events, you know, in New England Classic up in Massachusetts there. How, tell us a little bit how that panned out and how do you think that prepared you for what was to come? Uh, it was, um, you know, the Pleasant Valley Classic up there in, at, uh, in, in Mass. Uh, I led all week, I was playing great. Last hole was a little par five. I hit the second shot just off the left side of the green. Easy little up and down, it would have been from 30 or 40 feet to win and uh, one of the team that was with the camera crews stood on my ball apparently I was told after but no one spoke up when I got up there and my ball was really sitting down in a crappy lie and I couldn't chip it close enough and I missed the putt so I tied with Bruce Fleischer and uh, we went on into a playoff and uh, Bruce just chipped and putted so beautifully and, and uh, kept in the playoff all the way through. I was hitting it in close and missing the birdie putts. And then on the seventh playoff hole, it was getting dark. I had to fly to the Open Championship that night out of Boston to uh, to London on British Airways. And he holed about a 60, 70 foot putt from the front of the green up there near the clubhouse and, uh, and won it. So I finished second in the playoff. I finished second a few times in that couple of year period. 
But we took off journeying home. We went to the open. We got there the next morning, young Haley in tow. And uh, I thought, oh, well, it's better to run second in, in Boston and then win the open. So I went into the open in really, really good form. Had won a, a big tournament a couple of weeks before that, a two-rounder called the Westinghouse, Frank Fuhrer Pro-Am, where all of the top 30 players played around Oakmont. And I'd shot 65, 67 to win comfortably there. And so I was in, in good form. So uh, arriving at Royal Birkdale, I thought I would be in the mix uh, come the end. It was just stay calm and comfortable. And, and what I always tried to do, Hugo, was treat the majors as hard as I'd prepared for them. Once I got there, I tried to treat them like any other tournament and not let them get too big. Everyone gets too tense, the majors. Yeah, they put undue pressure on themselves. And, you know, pressure pressure self-inflicted, really, isn't it? Totally, yeah. And it, it's very easy to say, too. Just uh, treat it like mm. any other tournament. It was uh, certainly, you know, um, a lot of a lot of people, players, caddies, backed me to win. They had seen how I'd been. You know, I'd been top ten every tournament through the summer. I usually find players that finish second in a tournament, the next tournament, I'd back them to be the one to win. You know, it's like I'm owed one. That type of feeling. Yeah. And the other thing too, the year before that, St Andrews Open in 1990, I had played in the last group again on the Sunday with Nick Faldo when he won in record score so I'd also had another good open showing coming into 91 yeah I was going to say that you played the final group 84 90 and then there you were in 91 again in the final group so you could say it was going to be your time you probably learned from the other things and you felt ready I did and I spent the morning in the garden at the house we'd rented with uh, with young Haley, who was two years old then two and a half Jenny was six months pregnant with Laura. Once again, everything was in, in uh, um, was, the stars were aligned, if you will. I had Steve Band, who was uh, coaching Robert Allenby at the time, and one of the great coaches in Australia was staying with us, a good, good buddy. We'd been in each other's wedding party, so it was a comfortable week. Um, and then I played with Mark O'Meara in the last group, who was my really, really good friend from Orlando used to hang out and play together a lot so everything was really comfortable for me and uh, I played great and went out I shot 29 the front nine and usually when you're in the last group and you shoot 29 the front nine that's a good thing (laughs) (laughs) that means everyone else has got to shoot 25 to keep up (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that was uh, a memorable experience you know I had had to just uh, hang on really the back nine and I I knocked a five iron on the green of 17 and two putted for birdie. So I got to the last hole with a three shot lead. And I just drove, aimed it straight down the left rough. I wasn't going to go anywhere near the out of bounds or that little pot bunker. Because I wasn't long enough to carry it. I think it was 265 or something to carry that bunker. And everyone avoided it. It hit three wood left of it. Or, and I just drove it in the left rough purposely. I hit a six iron just short of the green. Chipped it up, almost chipped it in and uh, lagged the putt down, two-putted for bogey and one by two. So uh, just a comfortable a comfortable last hole, which is what I wanted. Yeah, absolutely. When when did you feel you had it one, after 17? Or when your final putt went in? Uh, I really I, I really think when I hit four iron to about 12 foot on 16, um, I knew I was still in control. I'd missed a short putt for birdie at 15. But then 16 had a really good drive and four iron into the wind to nearly hold it. probably the best walk in, in golf there up the 18th, especially if you you know you're about to get the claret jug a few moments later. Yeah, it was pretty special. 
So many people probably miss the fact, because now you're on television, they see that when you won the Open, you actually wore glasses. And as from my recollection, there's only Tom Kite, Hale Irwin and yourself that wore glasses. I know we've spoken about this, but um, you wore them for different reasons. You said Hale Irwin and Tom Kite were both blind as bats, but you wore them yeah. for a different reason. Yeah, that's interesting that you just, you, you wore them for the looks. <laughs> <laughs> I wore yeah. It didn't look too good, I know that. Actually, my manager said, you sure you can't just wear contact lenses? You'd look a lot better. And I tried contacts, but they were so, I, I guess they were so light and flimsy. They used to pop off my eye all the time, and I, I just couldn't feel comfortable in them. And they were a pain in the butt on the golf course. If you get it in a bunker, you always seem to get sand in them. And so I just wore the glasses. And uh, anyway... Um, they served me well. It was hard when it rained. If it was steamy and raining in Australia, they used to fog up. That's the only time that they were a nuisance. Yeah, I bet. Um, so, right, you know, everyone knows after that your game went a little bit sour and, and didn't have the, the play that you obviously once had. What what advice, you know, based on your experience, would you have for someone that goes through that, like has, has reached a, a high pinnacle of golf and then their, their game falls away a little bit? What, what would you give as advice, you know, is it over-trying, is it overthinking? is it too yeah. mechanical? It was a mixture of all of those, uh, Brad. It was really, I would, I would say, and I've said it to a number of players that, you know, if they're listening, they'll know who they are, that the same thing has happened to them. Um, where they were just really good players, and all of a sudden they won a major or they did something exceptional, players' championship, whatever, and I'd go to them straight away and I'd say, do not change equipment. Do not change ball. Just go be who you've been all your life. Don't do anything different. Stick with your coach. You know, don't go running around the world earning hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, you know, chasing the, uh, the appearance fees. Just keep doing what you've been doing because it's a whole um, comfort zone thing. You've got to be comfortable once you've won a big event and you're in the top ten in the world and you're playing with the top players in the limelight all the time, it takes a while to just get used to that and, and being a different person. But then over time, for me, with the demise in my confidence level, I, um, I chased what... I tried to fix something rather than just continuing to do what I did. Right. And uh, I would... The advice when you start losing it and I'm very proud of a few guys that have done gone through like Scott Verplank for instance went through a terrible time in the early 90s and came out of it a far better player and there's been a few that, that struggled Jeff Sluman struggled for a long time Bob Tway um, with confidence and they fought their way through it what I did wrong was I, I must have gone to 20 different coaches um, 20 different sports psychologists I just was all the time trying to fix something that really was just in my mind. Right. 
and I would advise people to stick with their coach, stick with a couple of really good old friends and solid advisors, and uh, you know just try and stay confident and work your way through it. Uh, you don't like Jordan Spieth at the moment is going through a really bad patch for him. As you know, we were thinking he was going to be the next Tiger Woods. Absolutely. So we spent a lot of time during, you know, together during that time frame. Played. We both live in Orlando. Played a lot at home. Played a lot of practice rounds together. So the the greatest thing from all that that I saw was that you were always still polite. Always acknowledge people rooting for you, knowing that they wanted you to do well. So let's put the golfer aside. How did all that shape you as a person rather than a golfer? It's a tough game. Um, you know, I think based on, you know, I'm a teacher now, but I played also, and you play at club level and pro level, and then I think golfers, you know, you either got to be really smart or there's some real crazy people out there <laughs> so, and that are willing to do anything. I'm, I'm sure you got some bizarre suggestions during that time. You got, oh. you got any beauties to share? intentions. Thank you. 
well, I actually went to the Open Championship in 97 to go to meetings. I was on the board of the Australian Tour, and I wasn't going to play. And everyone there said, Benji, you've played 15 of these things in a row or 14 in a row. You've got to play. You're here. So uh, I tapped Todd Woodbridge, the famous tennis player from Australia, on the shoulder. I said, come on, Woody, come and caddy for me. We'll go play. Well, I hadn't played for a year. And uh, I was very nervous. And I hit a couple of three putts and I, and I snap up to drive. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, shit, I'm not going to break 80 here. And I got really timid and, and the, the wind was blowing at Troon. Anyway, I think I finished double, double, double and shot 92. That was the end. Yeah. Because I felt so oh, humiliated. Exactly is the word. I was humiliated. I should never have played. Um, and then I, I withdrew, and uh, that was really the last time I played. I, I played a couple of times at Colonial, and I play well now. You know, I should be in the 60s if I play the play one tee up. I'm a bit older, but that was really the end of my playing days because it, mentally it just took all my confidence away and replaced it with scar tissue. And it took me a long time to really get over that uh, that experience, if you will. And and that made me realise how you just go do the television, you've got a nice offer to go do that with ABC and ESPN and I went off to do the television. But all of those bad experiences I think have helped me through uh, the last 20 years in, in a good way and I think I've been able to give back to the game as, as an announcer, as a commentator, an analyst if you will um, in, in a good positive way because of all of those experiences. So, you know, obviously you've always been recognised as one of the, the great putters, silky smooth, never really looked bad over a putt. What were your thoughts on putting? I, I know I, I came and saw you for my putting once and you you gave me a, a little tip that I've never even really heard before that was interesting where when you put the ball down, you don't like to use a line, you don't use like to see the logo, you wanted to show wide up and, and little things like that. What, what were your keys to being able to, you know, continue to putt well and, and always be a good putter? You know, is it true that you're talking about mental thing that you actually had a note in your wallet reminding yourself about putting, how good you were or not? Smooth stroke, smooth stroke, so there was no other way any other 
thoughts could come in. And then as I stepped up to it, it was smooth on the way back and stroke on the way through. So I was creating a, uh, a positive pathway, but also blocking negative vibes that can come through. And that's putting in a nutshell. Absolutely. <laughs> So we've seen, you know, in recent years, there's a lot more technical stuff in golf. We've got track mans and weight distribution tools and, and all the tempo, you know, blast motions and all that. So Bryson DeChambeau, the scientist, Seve, the artist, you know, both have strong points and flaws. What do you think is the best approach for longevity and success? Artist. Artist. In a word. Yeah. I'd agree because, you know, you stand on the range and you've got the same lie, same club, same wind direction, but and you practice that over and over. But on the golf course, you rarely hit two shots the same in a row. So you, there's got to be artistry there too. I think so too. But then he'll go the other way and say, well, I'm taking out all the variables. I know that it, the wind is this strength. I know I'm on a 0.08 degree slope down. I know the atmospheric pressure. <laughs> the wind density. So as, as things panned out, we've touched on this, you were lucky enough to have a voice and a face for broadcast television. So you've been a commentator for about 20 years. How was that transition? I know you touched on it, but initially, um, you know, did you have to find your feet? Were you with trepidation about what you would say or, or you just be ba Ian Baker Finch and just let it roll?
that so I've learnt more. I've learnt with, with a lot of producers and, and uh, production people behind the scenes that have helped me. But it's um, it's not easy. Not everyone can do it. It's it's not a hard job, but not everyone can do it. It's hard to explain. It's hard to talk when someone else is talking in your ear. And um, you have to learn timing and and you have to be well prepared, like any golfer. If you're not prepared when you get there, you've got no chance. I knew when I went to golf that half the field had no chance and half of the other half didn't think they had a chance. So you really only had to beat a quarter of the field because <laughs> you were so well prepared. I, I remember going in some of those commentary booths with you because I was interested in it to, to see all the, the stuff that went on in the background and you'd let me sit there near you and I'd put the headset on and, and it was astounding how many voices were going on in the headset while you're trying to talk at the same time in a microphone. It was incredible. I don't know how you do it. The other thing too, if you remember, it's a lot faster in your headset because everyone else in your ear is panicking to get something in on time or press the right button or whatever it might be. So even though the show feels like it's flowing and it's actually quite slow at times, in the booth, in your headset, it's... it's uh, All right, so we're going to change gears here just a little bit. We're going to talk this year the President's Cup is at Royal Melbourne. You served as an assistant three times. Is this a must-win for the internationals to try and get some fever back in this event like happened with Europe winning the Ryder Cup? Do we do we have to win, and, and how are we going to do that? If we don't win, we have to perform well again like we did in Korea a couple of cups ago. We, we have to uh, prove that we can compete. Um you know there's a lot of reasons why it's tough for us just the, the makeup of our team is really strange to create a team atmosphere when you know three or four of the guys are meeting the better players for the first time when they get there because they've come from overseas tours and uh, there's quite often a language barrier with three or four of the players um, you know you have Hideki Matsuyama on the team he's, he's a great player and everything but he needs an interpreter to have a conversation with you <coughs> and um it makes it tough and the players that have been around a long time like Adam Scott they're at a point now where they go there they want to win so badly because they've had you know six or seven losses uh, it's hard to hard to be confident and it's hard to have a, a real team spirit we don't have a flag um, we don't really set up our own course you know the PGA Tour owns the event so they do it all they run it all So we're going to finish her off here in a few quick-fire questions. You don't have to answer them long. Short and sweet if need be. Okay. You ready? Who influenced your golf game the most? Jack Nicklaus. Your favourite golfer ever, growing up or later on as, you know, a friend or com, com, uh, opponent? Jack Nicklaus. <laughs> favourite golf course in Australia? Kingston Heath. Favourite golf course in the world? Nice one. I've seen that. Haven't played that. Favorite event. <laughs> favorite event as a tour player that you played. Well, you got to say the Masters in the U.S. and the Open Championship in in the world. Yeah, they're, they're the two. And I think the Open Championship at St Andrews is the major of all majors. Favorite event to commentate on. This should be an easy one too. Maybe. Colonial, where I won uh, my first tournament over here, and uh, it, 
that's really special. And of course, the Open Championship, if I'm working that one, which I don't anymore, unfortunately, that was always great. Yeah. All right, last one. Your commissioner for a day or the head of the RNA or the USGA for a day, what do you think you would change to benefit the entire game? There's such a big discrepancy now between distance and amateur and a pro can hit it. It's, it's just too vast, like you said. There's got to be a way. Hopefully they'll come up with it, but, you know, maybe the horse is bolted. But there's got to be some limit put to it sooner or later. A quick story. I play with a lot of tour players when I'm home in Florida. And, uh, you know, it's no fun me going a tee up, which I need to do. They all hit it 60 yards past me. But I was playing with Louis Wisthazen the other day, and Louis said, seen you know even in the old days when norman was long and and you were playing your best set what 25 30 at the maximum on some shots You had the bulge and roll, hit off the toe, and it'd start 50 yards right and hook 100 yards left. We'll just start up a persimmon tour for the old guys like you and me, and we'll dust our old stuff off. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. It's hard to get one of these new balls in the air with a persimmon driver, isn't it? That's right. We'll peel out our old Royal Max flies and stuff we've got in the garage somewhere. Yeah. They're all yellow now. <laughs> all right, Finchie, thanks very much for joining me. That was awesome. Uh, we'll get some great insights yeah. from everything, and appreciate you coming on. I'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, buddy. Well, thanks for a great first episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Ian Baker Finch. It's really interesting to hear some of his thoughts about his career and even his 
struggles and how things have panned out for him. In the future podcasts, I'm going to try and get golfers of his ability, friends, foes, anyone you can think of. If you have any suggestions, let me know and we'll see what we can do. Be sure to subscribe to Bradley Hughes Golf. If you want to help your own golf game, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. Become a member of my members-only site, bradleyhughesgolf.com. Thanks for listening. Good luck with your game. Hit them far and hit them straight.